take your Bibles and turn with me uh, to the last book, the Bible, Revelation, in chapter 1. We're going to focus tonight on uh, the last few verses of this chapter, starting in verse 12. But I'd like for us to read the whole chapter together uh, so that we can have some context uh, for, uh, for what we're looking at. It's Revelation chapter 1, starting in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. The revelation... Of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. For the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who was and who is and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. And made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. Who is and who was and who is to come. The Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And this is the portion that we'll be looking at specifically tonight. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow, His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, And the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Let's pray together once more. Father, we have we have just read aloud your word. We are hearing you speak. And Lord, we want to be those blessed ones who hear what you have written in this book and who keep what is written in it as the time grows nearer and nearer. Lord, I pray that you would give us grace to see Jesus clearly in these verses. 
And Lord, that we would respond in a manner worthy of our Lord. We love you and praise you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, a few years ago, I was shopping in Target when I noticed uh, a young man who seemed to have his eye on me. And uh, I went from aisle to aisle, and and it looked like he was kind of following me, uh, like he was working up the nerve to come talk to me. And as he was kind of approaching, I had this thought. I thought, I think this guy's about to share the gospel with me. And uh, and so I was pretty excited to hear whatever he had to say. And uh, as he comes up to me, and uh, he says, uh, you know, have have you— have you ever, do you study the Bible? I'm like, well, yeah, as a matter of fact, I do. And um, he says, uh, well, have you ever read about Mother God? And I was like, no. <laughs> and uh, he said, well, well, can I show you, uh, you know, it's, it's in the Bible, can I show you? Um, I was like, okay. Uh, and so he, what followed was, uh, he pulled out his smartphone, he showed me uh, some verses, and he, he went from one verse to another and, and ripped them out of their context and, and said, yeah, well, if you, if you take this, it kind of means this, and this, you mean that, and, and, and you know, put it all together. And, and what just came out was just this, the most unbiblical, just off-the-wall stuff that he was trying to say to me. And honestly, I was so taken aback by what he said. I was just dumbfounded from what I expected him to say when he said, hey, let me open the Bible and show you. And from what actually came out. And so I was just speechless. And, and uh, you know, I, I asked him a few questions about what he was saying, what he was believing. Uh, but the conversation didn't really go anywhere. He had to go. And uh, I just kind of was left just struck by what in the world was that about? Well, uh, it, it turns out that he was part of a, uh, a false religion called the, uh, the World Mission Society Church of God. It's a, it's a cult uh, that started in South Korea and has made its way to the States, mostly in the East Coast, um, and then randomly to Louisville, Kentucky, of all places. There's a small group of people who, who have this belief. And uh, since that first encounter, uh, Alyssa and I have actually had, uh, t- have been approached twice by other people uh, in Louisville from this false religion who, who have approached us and, uh, and asked us that same question and, 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 and uh, outlined some of these same uh, unbiblical beliefs. And uh, we've had the opportunity now um, to ask them their stories. How did you get into this church? Like, how did the church, uh, how did you get into this religion? And um, what's so sad is we've, we've talked to four different people now, and every single one had the exact same story. I grew up in church or around churches, and no one ever explained to me what the Bible taught. No one ever explained to me what the Bible said. But then I came to this other church, and they opened up the Bible, and they said, this is what it means. And so they were longing for truth. They were desiring to know, what does the Bible say? What does God say? And all they were getting from the churches that they experienced were just kind of good advice for getting through life. How to be a good person, and, and how, to, how to, you know, have a, a, a strong marriage, or how to have, you know, a success at work, or how to raise your kids. And, and they, said, they were talking all about this life and this world— and, and I wanted something about eternal life. And I wanted to know, what, what does the Bible say? And because they weren't getting it, they were able to be led astray uh, by these people who, um, who, who claim that everything that they believe comes from the Bible, but teach false teachings, things that are just so terribly and cra- crazy, unbiblical. And the burden that it has given uh, Alyssa and I as we have uh, talked to these people is just to see churches that open up the Bible. What's so sad is that, that, as sad as it is that these people have been led astray, what's also sad is there are people who have the Word of God, who have the Spirit of God, who know what it says, and they aren't opening it. They're not listening to the voice of Jesus. As churches, they're not about the voice of Jesus, the word of God. And it's, uh, it's maybe easy to say, oh yeah, th- those people over there are doing that. You know, those people over there are not listening to the voice of Jesus. But I think we need to be honest and consider for ourselves what voice is driving our life. What voice am I turning to when I'm afraid? 
what voice am I turning to for encouragement? When, when I feel a need for encouragement, where do, where do I turn? Whose voice am I listening to? When I need comfort, when I'm looking for that, wh- what voice am I turning my ears to? When I'm looking for guidance, when I'm looking for truth, what voice am I turning to? And, and likewise, you know, it's easy to subtly start to think that just that being a Christian, you know, it, reducing it as these, these folks have, to just being a good person and being, you know, and kind of teaching others, well, you know, this is, being a Christian is about, you know, just loving people and, and, and all of this and missing the voice of Jesus and the gospel of Jesus that is not just about this life, but about eternal life. We have something so much better in the scriptures than just human advice. We have a God who is speaking. We have a God who is revealing himself. We have a God who is not hidden, but who wants to speak to us. And so the question that I would pose to us is, are we listening? Are we about the voice of Jesus? Are we about his word? As we look at this uh, passage tonight, the word of God, my burden is that we would and that he would awaken in us a desire to trust him and listen to his voice alone. Uh, so let's turn to the text. As read, Apostle John is being persecuted because of the gospel. He's been exiled uh, to the island of Patmos. And while he's there, he hears a voice. And in verse 11, we see that the voice tells him to write what he sees and to send it to the churches. And the section that we're going to look at uh, begins at verse 12 with what John sees. And we'll go through the rest of the chapter then. And uh, as we look at this text, I see in this passage four scenes. Four scenes that take place. First, we see a terrifying vision. Starting in verse 12. see a terrifying vision. Then in verse 17, we see a humble response. Then in the Second part of verse 17 and into 18, we see the comforting voice of the king. And then in 19 and following, we see the commanding voice of the king. So we'll look at each of these scenes uh, in turn. So scene one, a terrifying vision of the king. So as we look at this and as we've already read it, we need to recognize that, that what John received and what we have before us is Jesus revealing himself to John... And ultimately to the churches through a scripture-saturated symbolic vision. So Jesus is revealing himself in this vision through symbols that are saturated and rooted in scripture. And so as John sees this and as he writes this to us, he's inviting us to understand these symbols in light of scripture. And understand that what Jesus, how Jesus is revealing himself Uh, He's communicating who he is through these symbols. So let's take a look. What did John see? Look at verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. Well, fortunately, since we've already read to the end of the chapter, uh, we know what these seven lampstands are. Uh, Jesus says in verse 20, if you look down there. Verse 20. Uh, the very last uh, phrase there, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Okay, so see, it's not so hard. Uh, he tells us right there, this is a symbol. Uh, the lampstands are the seven churches. And uh, when John says the seven churches, uh, we should understand this at, at a couple of different levels. One, uh, John is writing to the seven churches that he listed there, that we read earlier in chapter 1. These seven churches that, were, that existed there in the first century that he was writing letters to. But in the book of Revelation, part of the way that John communicates, part of the way that Jesus communicates as he reveals, numbers uh, to communicate meaning. And so when he says the number seven, throughout the book of Revelation, this number communicates the idea of, of wholeness or completion. And so on one level, when he says seven churches, he means these seven churches that he's writing to uh, in the first century but when we look at the number in a, uh, in a more symbolic way, we understand that seven churches means the, the whole church, all of the churches. And uh, just to, to show you what I mean by, uh, by how he uses that uh, number, look back up at verse 4, where John writes, um, who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who were before his throne. 
Well, he's talking about the Holy Spirit, but there are not seven Holy Spirits. There's one, but he's referring to the one Holy Spirit and saying that the fullness of his presence is there. He's the seven spirits of God before his throne. Well, likewise, when he says the seven churches, he's talking about all the churches, the whole church. And so as we see these seven lampstands, we're seeing the people of God, the churches, the whole church. And uh, the symbol of a lampstand, uh, if we can take it one more level, uh, is really significant in Scripture. If you think about where we see lampstands elsewhere in Scripture, uh, probably the most prominent place uh, is in the temple. In Exodus 25, God uh, lays out for the people of Israel how uh, the, the temple, the, the place where he said, I will be present on the earth with my people, this physical representation of God's presence on the earth with his people, he, he lays out the instructions for building it. And in the middle of that temple is a golden lampstand with seven lamps on it. And so we see that this symbol communicates a lot about the church, that Jesus is present with the churches. He's in the midst of the seven lampstands, just as God was with uh, the people of Israel and the temple. Now God's presence on the earth uh, is with the churches, with these seven, uh, the seven lampstands. So that's, a, that's the first thing that John sees. Let's continue on in verse 13, because what we really want to look at is who's in the midst of the seven lampstands, not just the lampstands themselves. In 13, John says, And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. So this term, uh, one like a son of man, uh, indicates to, uh, that John is seeing a human figure before him. He's son of man. He's human. Uh, but this title and even this description point to something very significant about this person, the, the son of man. Uh, keep a finger in Revelation and flip back with me to Daniel. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13. Daniel seven thirteen. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven... Uh, that should sound familiar. We read about that in chapter 1. The one coming with the clouds, Jesus... And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, that is uh, God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." And so this figure that is standing before John in the midst of these golden lampstands is a human king, the human Messiah who would rule the kings of the earth from the throne of David for all of eternity. This is the one that John sees before him. That's what's communicated when he says uh, the son of man. And uh, in fact, um, you can mark down Daniel 10.5 where even the robe and the sash are an indication of that this figure that John sees is the same figure that Daniel was seeing who would be the Messiah, the ruler of the kings of the earth, the kingdom of God for all of eternity. Uh, so let's flip back to Revelation 1. We see the Messiah standing in the midst of the churches and we see a description of him starting in verse 14. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. Now, white wool, snow, is a symbol throughout Scripture of purity. Uh, you can think of, you know, washing sin white as snow uh, in Isaiah. So it's a symbol of purity. So certainly there's a, a, a communication here about this Messiah before him being pure. But it also matches uh, the description of another vision of Daniel. And again, uh, just mark this down, we won't turn there, but in Daniel 7, 9, Daniel describes the Ancient of Days, uh, which was a term we saw before, in the same way, with the same description um, that, he see, he, that he writes in Revelation chapter 1. In the book of Daniel, the Son of Man is a, a human figure, and the Ancient of Days is God. He's a divine figure. And, and in Daniel, they kind of seem to be two distinct people, but the person that John sees before him 
matches both of these descriptions in one person, which tells us that the one that John is looking at, the one who is revealing himself, is the God-man, God-made flesh, Jesus Christ. He is eternal God, the first and the last, and he is a human being who uh, God took on uh, the flesh of. So he is the, the Messiah, the God-man. Let's keep on looking at the description. Uh, the next part of verse 14, it says, His eyes were like a flame of fire. And this picture is, uh, is a picture of, of judgment, that his eyes are all seeing, that nothing's hidden from his sight. Um, Hebrews 4.13 says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. All throughout uh, Jesus' letters to the churches that, that follow chapter 1 in Revelation, Jesus says, I know this about you. I know your works. I know where you are. He sees all. Nothing is hidden from his sight. Let's keep reading the description in verse 15. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. Uh, the idea of, of refined metal in Scripture uh, is again communicating moral purity. And uh, so for his feet to be refined uh, metal it means that his ways are pure. So this is a God who sees all, whose ways are pure, who is pure himself. Let's keep reading. Verse uh, 15. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. Uh, Psalm 29, 3 and 4 says, The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. There's power in the voice of the Lord standing in the midst of the churches. And if we keep reading in verse 16, In, in his right hand he held seven stars. Now, again, we know from verse 20 what this symbol means, that these seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And as John uh, talks about the angels of the churches um, throughout Revelation, what we see is they're, they're representing the church. In fact, Jesus will pin letters to the angel of the church at such and such. And so we see them as, as kind of a representative of the church. Um, as he speaks to the angel, really speaking to the whole church. And so when, when we see that this God-man, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Lord, is holding in his hand these seven stars, he's holding in his hand the churches. He's holding in his hand his people. Let's keep reading in verse 16. From his mouth came a sharp, two-edged sword. Uh, this may be a familiar picture to you. Uh, maybe Hebrews 4 comes to mind. Hebrews 4, 12. Uh, we read earlier from verse 13. That the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And again, verse 13. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So this God who is pure, this God who sees all and knows all and is holding the churches in his hand is the God who, whose word judges. The word, uh, he judges according to this word that is sharp, that is piercing. Nothing is hidden from him and he, he judges according to his word and, and holds up actions, holds up the, up, uh, the earth, the church to his word and judges rightly from his word. Uh, we see this picture again later in Revelation 19.15. From his mouth, this is at the, the second coming of Jesus. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Uh, finally, let's look at the rest of verse 16 to see this last portion of the description. Uh, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. The glory of Jesus is such that human eyes can't even stand to look at him. And so all of this description, all of this that John sees before him, taken together, forms this terrifying vision of a God of, of glory. A king who rules perfectly, who judges perfectly perfectly who sees all from whom no evil is hidden 
Nothing is hidden from his sight. He judges rightly. And he has come to judge. And so this physically terrifying vision of, of fire and roars and, and a burning and like the sun. It's physically terrifying and spiritually terrifying. As John knows, this is the king. This is the judge. This is the God who is going to rule the nations. He, there is a fear that comes over John and we see then scene two, a humble response to the king in verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Uh, imagine, imagine that you were in the presence of this awesome glory of the resurrected Jesus. What would you do if, if the one who, uh, from whom none of your sin was hidden was right there in front of you? What would you do before the one who holds your life and compares it to his perfect, cutting, living, active word? You know, there was a song a few years ago called I Can Only Imagine. And so I don't want to criticize him. But biblically speaking, there is no question. We don't we don't have to. Oh, wait. Um. Biblically speaking, we don't have to imagine. When Joshua, okay, thank you. When Joshua saw the commander of the Lord's army, he fell down to the ground. When Daniel saw the Son of Man that we looked at, he collapsed. He says the life went out of him. When the disciples saw Jesus after the resurrection, they fell down on his feet, on their face at his feet. When Paul saw the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus, he fell to the ground. And now in verse 17, John says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. There is no question of what we would do before the glorious and righteous judge of the earth. We would fall to the ground. It's natural. It's right to be afraid when you know that you're guilty. And the one before you is the one to whom you are accountable. When you know that this person I'm speaking with is the one that I have to give an account to. And when I know that I'm guilty before them. It's right and natural to be afraid. About this time last year, Alyssa and I were getting ready uh, to get married. And so uh, we had a lot of details to work out, a lot of planning to do, as you can imagine, planning a wedding and a honeymoon and all those details that had to be worked out, but also all of the details that, uh, that came from merging our two lives together and all the logistics and address changes and name changes and all, all of the details that, that have to be worked out. And in the midst of all that hustle and bustle, um, I got a letter from the Louisville uh, Revenue Office uh, telling me that, um, that I uh, uh, hadn't paid uh, about $20 on my taxes, that I, I missed about $20. $20. And so um, I thought, okay, well, I need to pay that. But it kind of got lost in the shuffle of everything, that we, everything else that we were doing. And uh, so um, they very kindly sent me a second letter. Um, saying, hey, we want that $20. And I thought, okay, um, but, but it just kind of got lost in the shuffle again. And we get married, and we go on the honeymoon, and we come back, we move into our new apartment, have an address change. And a third letter is uh, forwarded to uh, our new address, and uh, they want that $20, and they want a little bit more because it's taking me so long. And uh, so I was like, okay, I, I, I got to do this. Like, this is, the, I, I, I you know, can't play around with this. Um, but, but it still kind of uh, ended up sliding a little bit. And then one day, <laughs> um, then one day, uh, when Alyssa was at work, I was home by myself, I get a call from someone uh, saying they're with the IRS. And my heart sunk. Uh, this person proceeded to tell me that uh, there had been a miscalculation on my taxes, and that with interest, that now I owe uh, $7,000. They said that the IRS had filed a lawsuit against me, and that there was a warrant out for my arrest. 
Right, right. And then I could expect the police to come knocking at my door at any moment. Now, at this point, I should have reacted like you did and smelled something fishy going on. But I knew I was guilty. I knew that I really did owe money, so I freaked out. I thought, how did $20 turn into $7,000? Like, a lawsuit? A warrant? Police? I'm going to get locked up. I'm going to lose my ministry. I'm going to bring shame on my family. I'm going to be separated from my wife. I'm like, oh my gosh, like, I can't believe what is going on. And so they told me that I could have the warrant removed. I'm like, yes, I, oh, yes. For a small fee. For just $1,000, which is like nothing. It's pennies compared to the $7,000 or, oh, I could get this warrant removed. And I thought at that moment, praise God for a moment of clarity, I thought, that's not how warrants work. (laughs) And I finally realized that I was not actually talking to the IRS. And uh, so I hung up. I mean, at that point, I mean, my my heart uh, needed to, like, restart. But... but I realized, like, oh, I, I've got no reason to fear. This isn't the IRS. See, if I, if I had known that I was innocent, I wouldn't have been afraid. It doesn't matter who they are. Like, if I had known, like, I'm in the clear, I've got nothing to be afraid of. And likewise, once I realized that the person that I was talking to was not actually who I was accountable to, I wasn't afraid. I was still guilty, but I wasn't afraid. But when you stand before the perfect, holy, glorious, all-seeing, authoritative judge and king of the universe, the one that you know you are accountable to and that you will stand before at the end of your life, and you know that you will stand guilty before him when judged according to his perfect word, when he sees everything and nothing is hidden from his sight, you fall down on your face in fear terror. So here we have the glorious, resurrected Son of Man and a terrified John fallen at his feet. And how does Jesus respond? Well, this brings us to scene three. Read with me, picking back up in verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but... He laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not. What we see here is scene three, the comforting voice of the king. Jesus reaches down to this terrified man, and he says, fear not. Well, but why not? <laughs> why not? Why should, why should he not fear? Is it because Jesus isn't really that scary? No. Is it because... Jesus isn't really that glorious. No. Is it, is it because John is not really that guilty? No. Listen to why John shouldn't fear. Jesus says, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. So why shouldn't you be afraid? Why shouldn't you fall to Jesus' feet as though you were dead? Because the eternal God, the first and the last, died in your place. Because the eternal God, the first and the last, died and took the death that you deserved on himself, the wrath that you deserved on himself. And furthermore, he died and he rose again and he is alive forevermore. He is the living one, the one that you are trusting your life to is the first and the last and the living one. And he holds the keys of death and Hades. He has the power. He has control. Death is locked up in Jesus' dungeon and it can't touch you without his permission. That is why you don't have to fear because he died in your place. He has your life and he is not going to let death touch a single person that he has saved and bought with his blood. That is why we don't have to fear in the presence of a glorious and awesome Savior. John tells us in 1 John 4.18, There is no fear in love, 
But perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. And grace my fears relieved. So if you're here today. And you are his. You have no reason to fear. If you've turned from your sins and trusted in Jesus' death to pay the penalty for your sins, you have no reason to fear. If you've trusted in his resurrection and his life and you were banking on Jesus for eternity, you have no reason to fear. But if you're here tonight and you feel fear, if you've seen this glorious and holy judge and you realize that you're guilty before him and that you don't have a leg to stand on, that you haven't been covered by the blood of Jesus, that you haven't turned from sin, that you haven't trusted in Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, trust him tonight. Trust him. In Christ, we can be free from the fear of punishment and know the joy of life everlasting with God. God loved this world by sending his son so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Jesus is the one who died and conquered death and he alone can save you from death. So trust in him. Turn to him. There may also be those in this room tonight who do belong to Jesus, but as we look at this awesome, holy, glorious Savior and you recognize that this is the one that nothing is hidden from, that you may be feeling some fear, and that you may be feeling some guilt, and that you may be feeling this sense of dirtiness, a sense of unworthiness, a fear. Is, is after, after what I've done, can God still love me? If, if, if he really knew what I was like, there's no way that he could save me. There's no way that he would keep me. Well, the gospel is good news for you tonight, too. Trust in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. He is the first and the last. There's no one else. The one who is holding you, if you're his child, the one who is holding you is holding the keys of death in Hades. Nothing can touch you if you're his. He paid it all. He paid it all. All. There is nothing left for you to pay. And so find rest in the cross of Jesus. If you're here and you're feeling fear, find hope and peace in his forgiveness and his cleansing. He is able. He is able to cleanse you, to give you freedom from fear, to give you freedom from fear of punishment. His blood was enough. His death was enough. His life is enough. And so trust in the cross of Jesus tonight. Fear not. So with the comforting voice of the king, Jesus tells John not to fear. And this leads us to scene four, the last scene. The commanding voice of the king. John tells John not to fear, but to write. Verse 19. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. And this is, really the, this is really the bottom line of why, John, or why Jesus has appeared to John in this moment. Jesus came to give him a revelation that John was to write. Our resurrected king is standing in the midst of the churches and he wants to speak to them. Notice uh, in verse 19 the word, therefore. So he says... I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore. That is that this command to write comes from the authority that Jesus has through his death and resurrection. His work and his death and resurrection are reasons not to fear and they're also reasons why Jesus has the authority to say, write. He has the authority because he has bought a kingdom with his blood to speak to that kingdom, to write to them, to tell them what his heart is for them. And we can see this idea later in Revelation as well. A flip over just a couple pages to chapter 5. 
In chapter 5 of Revelation, 4 and 5, John sees an angel who's holding a scroll that contains the revelation of the future that's promised in this book. But in this vision, there's no one in heaven or on earth who is found worthy to open it up. That is to communicate the future, communicate what's to take place until the Lion of Judah shows up. The Lamb who was slain appears. And then the heavenly chorus sings, starting in uh, chapter 5, verse 9. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. So in his death and resurrection, Jesus bought a people and he bought the authority to speak to those people. And so he says, I died, I'm alive forevermore, therefore write. So Jesus wants to speak to the churches. He wants to speak to us, his people. What does he want to say? Well, look uh, in verse 19, he tells us, he tells John, write. I'm still in Revelation 4, chapter 1, verse 19. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, the things that are, and those that are to take place after this. Essentially, what Jesus gives in this one verse is an outline of the whole book of Revelation. What John has seen is the vision of Jesus that that we just looked at in chapter 1. The things that are, I have to do with the specific situation that each of these uh, seven specific churches uh, found themselves in. And uh, Jesus addresses these things in the next two chapters, chapters 2 and 3, in letters to the churches. And finally, the things that are to take place after this start in chapter 4 and then go all the way to the end of the book. And so this is, all collectively, what Jesus wants to communicate to the churches. And we can think about these three things this way. One... Um, he wants to communicate who he is. And that's what we've seen tonight. That's this vision that we've seen of Jesus and his glory, his resurrected glory. Jesus wants you to know who he is. That's what he wants to communicate to the churches, number one. Number two, he wants to communicate that he sees where you are. In chapters two and three, uh, John writes the things that are and Jesus is speaking to the churches about, about where they are. He, he is the one who sees all and knows all. And he tells the churches he knows their situations. And so, so in telling them, I, I know where you are. This is what he's trying to communicate to them. I, I know where you are. I see where you are. He tells them how they can be encouraged. For example, he says to the church at Ephesus in, uh, in chapter 2, he says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. How you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. So he sees and he tells them how they can be encouraged in what they're doing. That's good. He also tells the church, as he's communicating, I know where you are. I see nothing is hidden from me. He, he knows where they need to repent. So, for example, to the church in Sardis, in chapter 3, he writes, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. So he tells them, I know where you are. I know how you need to be encouraged. I know where you need to repent. And finally, he sees them and he tells them that he sees the struggle that they're going through. For example, in Revelation 2.10, he tells the church at Smyrna, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Jesus wants to speak to the churches, and he wants you to know that he sees you. He sees where you are. The good that you're doing is not going unnoticed. I think of the stay-at-home mom who is faithfully discipling her children. You are not going unnoticed. Jesus sees.
He knows where you are, and he is honored by your faithfulness to him. Jesus also sees where we stray from his word. every reason to repent and to turn away from that and turn to the hope and the life and the joy in following Jesus. He also knows how you're suffering. He knows how you're struggling. You've not been forgotten. He is with you and he's holding you in his hand. is speaking to the churches, saying, I know where you're going. He warns them in, these, uh, in the chapters that follow, in chapters 4 and following, that suffering is coming. Now, primarily, he talks about wrath that's being poured out on unrighteousness on the earth. But he also sees suffering that believers will encounter because of their faith in Jesus in the future. In Revelation 6, 9, John writes, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. So Jesus promises suffering, but ultimately he promises victory. In Revelation twelve ten to 11, John writes, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser and the kingdom of our God uh, sorry, for the accuser of, the, of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. And Jesus also promises ultimately comfort and eternal satisfaction in his presence. At the end of the book in Revelation 21, 3 and 4, John writes, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And finally, in light of the victory that he promises in light of the eternal life that Jesus promises forever in his presence, that he has won by his blood for the churches, he calls them to persevere. As they endure suffering, as they endure persecution, to persevere that this new heavens and new earth are coming. That this kingdom where we will be in the presence of Jesus forever without a tear in our eyes is coming. Look in Revelation fourteen twelve, John writes, Revelation 14, 12. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Yes, suffering is coming. Yes, we will have trials and tribulations. But at the end of a long path of faithfulness and endurance comes victory through the cross of Jesus Christ. At the end of this temporary journey, on this old earth is everlasting joy in the presence of our king in a new heavens and a new earth. So as we charge ahead, my charge to you is to fix your eyes on Jesus, to listen to his voice, to keep the words of this book as John has exhorted us to do, to keep his commandments, to listen to his voice. Our Lord is speaking to his churches and you have no reason to fear and every reason to trust him. So in this passage, as we uh, wrap up tonight, in this passage, we've seen this terrifying vision of the resurrected Christ in all of his glory. And we've seen John's humble response to this awesome vision. We've also heard the comforting voice of the king telling John not to fear, telling us not to fear. And we've heard the commanding voice of the king as Jesus commissions John to write the revelation that Jesus came to give him. Jesus Christ, the first and the last, the head of the church, 
wanted to speak to the churches. So he appeared to John and he commissioned him right. That was the charge to John. And through this book that we've been given, the word of God, Jesus is still speaking to the churches. John's charge was to write. Our charge is to listen to the voice of Jesus. And so my charge to us, as we see the amazing privilege we have of a Savior and Lord who wants to speak to us, not just about life now, although he's giving us comfort and joy and peace now in him, but about eternal life, about the death that he died and the life that he lives now, about the victory that he has, about the fact that he can save people from their sin and give them life everlasting with him. As we have this Lord speaking to us, don't settle for a lesser voice. Don't settle for a lesser voice for your life. Don't settle for a lesser voice for this church. Don't settle for a lesser voice for a watching world who are longing to know the truth who are longing to know eternal life, don't give them something less than the voice of Jesus. Jesus is calling them to himself. So be about the voice of Jesus. Because the voice of Jesus can extinguish our fear through his cross. The voice of Jesus can encourage us and correct us. The voice of Jesus can comfort us in our tribulation. And ultimately, the voice of Jesus will lead us home to his everlasting kingdom. So listen, listen to the voice of our resurrected king. Let's pray together. Jesus, we have looked at you in the word. You have been revealed to us through your scriptures where we have seen your glory. We have seen your holiness, your life, your power. And Lord, what an amazing thing that we don't have to fear before you. But Lord, that you welcome us to come near to you by your blood and by your resurrection. Jesus, by this cross, this death that you died, you have purchased the authority. You have purchased this kingdom for yourself and you have purchased the authority to speak to us. So Lord, may we not settle for a lesser voice. Lord, may we listen to your voice. And Lord, may we be conduits of your voice into this community and into the ends of the earth. Jesus, we're grateful that you speak to us. We're grateful for your word. So we ask that you would be honored in our lives as we seek to live out and keep your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen.